Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. SOL. Statute of Limitations tonight. Hi, Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, April 6, 2017. Happy Passover in advance of Monday and Tuesday next week. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones, and good evening to those in the East. Follow the instructions you received when you called in in order to show up on my studio board that you are waiting with a question. I'm joined tonight by my friend again, Charles Marshall, tonight to discuss the confusing array of decisions regarding the statute of limitations on initiating foreclosure actions, the doctrine of res judicata, it has already been litigated, collateral estoppel, you can't bring the claim because it happened somewhere else, and the Rooker-Feldman Doctrine, which specifically applies to federal courts versus state court uh, actions. First, a little elaboration on the use of accountants in foreclosure actions. CPAs, hold on, fixing something on my board here. Okay. CPAs are licensed by each state to practice uh, accounting, auditing, so forth, and most of them are members of the AICPA. Uh, It is accountants who write the rules of auditing, which are used as conclusive standards in SEC actions, tax cases, and dozens of other types of cases. It is accountants who set the rules of auditing and what will be sufficient evidence and sufficient sampling in order to give a clean opinion that the numbers presented on a piece of paper fairly represent the financial condition of an ongoing business on the financial statements that are attached to the letter of opinion. The rules of auditing are set forth in standards published by the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, and those rules basically evolve into uh, generally accepted accounting principles and are used essentially as law in all those actions, the SEC and tax court and so forth. So besides having an accountant 
to testify about why the numbers can't be reconciled on indecipherable payment histories printed out after the numbers were crunched and molded into what appears to be a clear case of default, a CPA can testify about auditing standards and therefore about evidence. And what that means is that an ex a CPA expert can testify about what constitutes reliable evidence of a financial transaction. It is the accountant who says that he won't attest to the financial statement or any other statement of one or a group of transactions without adequate evidence that the transaction exists. And it is the accountant who can testify in court that neither the payment schedule alone nor the statement that there was some time type of auditing or boarding process, um, uh, it, none of that is sufficient. It is the accountant who identifies paperwork as being inadequate to be posted as a transaction or who can say whether the posting was a reflection of a real transaction made at or near the time of the alleged transaction. It is the accountant who does not merely argue that the evidence is flimsy, but can say with certainty that the evidence presented would not be sufficient in an audit and is contrary to industry practice and contrary to law if it were to, uh, attempted to be used in any courtroom. That is why, for the last 10 years, I have been suggesting and prodding accountants to get in to the area of expert testimony in foreclosure defense. I think it is a huge area, and it comes, uh, it comes out a lot better when you have a CPA saying, that isn't evidence that I would accept and nobody in my, uh, uh, my business would accept it as an auditor or even as a CPA doing a, ta a tax return. So that's just a short uh, summary, and it's brought on by the fact that I got three questions this week so far having to do with the use of accountants. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm with offices in North Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lives blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And just a housekeeping note, the number 202-838-6345 is our main number, but it does not get you to this show or prior shows. You'll need to go to Blog Talk Radio and hit the appropriate link for the Neil Garfield Show. So, 
Charles, welcome back. Again and again. Yeah, hey, Neil. Hey, Neil, it's always great to be on your show. So, I wrote an article this week um, dealing with the um, Bartram decision and the Singleton decision in Florida. The Bartram decision was uh, a decision from the um, Supreme Court of Florida. And in my opinion, they changed the law. They confused the law. They presumed facts that were not true or present in the, in the Bartram case and basically twisted around until they could find an excuse to let banks sue over and over again despite the statute of limitations. And just to lay the groundwork here, Charles, and then we'll start talking about it, um, it used to be that a bank would lend money to a borrower and if the borrower was borrowing for the purchase or refinancing of a house, the borrower would give a mortgage to the bank as collateral for the debt. And if the borrower stopped payment at some point, the borrower would get a notice of default and an explanation of their right to reinstate. The numbers on the notice would be correct in almost all cases. And so uh, after that, if the borrower still did nothing, the borrower would get a letter saying that it was a notice of acceleration. Acceleration means that everything that is due under the loan is now due, right now. And that's provided for in the mortgage. So there's nothing wrong that the bank is doing when it does that. And then, if for some reason the bank were to lose, because they couldn't prove their case or because they were dead wrong or whatever it was, the statute of limitations on contract would be five years from the date of the declared default. Now, there's also a statute of repose, which is five years after the uh, expiration of the last event in the mortgage. But we're talking about the statute of limitations, which is, and I will point this out repeatedly, an affirmative defense that needs to be raised. And if it is not raised, then it is waived. That's important as to rescission actions, by the way, where judges skip over that point that the statute of limitations is not really a claim um, uh, it is a defense, um, uh, so for the TILA rescissions, the three-year period uh, might apply if 
the um, uh, borrower, after sending notice of rescission, files an action to enforce the rescission, then um, the the bank could raise the statute of limitations argument saying that the rescission was sent uh, outside of the three-year period provided in the statute, and the bank would win. But they don't do that, and they don't file actions to vacate it. And now in the Bartram decision, despite the fact that the bank has sent its notice of default, despite the fact that the bank has accelerated, the Bartram decision came up with the novel idea that when the judgment is entered for the borrower, that means that the uh, so the loan is deaccelerated and that they can accelerate again on some subsequent default on the premise that the borrower is still not making payments. But of course, the borrower could never be making payments during uh, the period of litigation after the notice of default because the bank doesn't accept payments uh, from, from the borrower or anyone else on that account. The acceptance of a payment would basically restart everything. So uh, there is some interesting language uh, in the Bartram decision uh, regarding uh, raised judicata, which is that the matter has already been litigated and uh, all of which caused me to write the article uh, posted yesterday uh, entitled, Is the Florida Bartram Decision Serious Law? Um, it essentially conflicts with prior decisions of the same court. In, in the past, once the bank sued and if it was dismissed without prejudice or whatever, the statute was running. And if they try to wait five years from the date of default and went beyond that and then sued, they'd be barred by the statute of limitations. The Florida Supreme Court just turned that on its head and said that... Neil, that's a really good way of framing that. I mean, I think this is exactly what's happened here. The statute has been turned on its head. Because if you look at statute of limitation law all around the country, it doesn't matter what jurisdiction you're talking about. It's always predicated based upon what the party who wants to say that the statute, you know, is, is not applying to them, what that party does. In other words, it's, it's usually a variation of snooze you lose. So in this case, the party trying to get around the statute of limitations, the lenders and servicers, you know, the, the so-called institutional securitized trust, they are the party that's trying to get out of the statute of limitations, and yet they are referencing the behavior of the opposite party, the party 
not from their side, but from the other side, to justify waiving the statute of limitations. That's essentially unique in statute of limitations law. I mean, anybody can look this up. Statute of limitations law is always based on what the party trying to enforce same type of law has done, will do, didn't do. Here, it's as if they're saying the missing of payments is unintentional or inadvertent or has nothing to do with the fact that the proper creditor is is not available to, to, to try to enforce the debt. So it, it, it's actually showing a level of um, certainly disregard. I'm not going to use the word contempt, but it's basically saying if the borrower is not paying, then there's some inadvertent reason which would justify resetting the statute of limitations standards for the party trying to enforce that, which again flies in the face of all case law in every state. Virtually every decision related this, to, the, to this issue, statute of limitations, is going to say the party trying to enforce that statute, we look to their behavior. We look to what they did or didn't do. Here it's the opposite. They look to the the opposing party's behavior, and that makes no sense. I, th I think the larger narrative is that this is just another decision where the courts bend themselves into a pretzel because they want the banks to win. That's it. If, Absolutely if was, unfortunately. If the shoe was on the other foot and it was the borrower claiming that the statute of limitations should not bar them from bringing their claims under uh, the FDCPA or FCCPA or uh, Truth in Lending Act or what have you, um, you can be sure that they would have twisted the pretzel in the other direction and barred the, the borrower from bringing the claim. And the, uh, the quote from, uh, in the Bartram case, which quotes from the Singleton case uh, with, with grand approval, that the mortgagor would have no incentive to make future payments. This, of course, is absurd. Whether the mortgagor had any incentive or not to make future payments we already know that the bank doesn't accept payments while it considers the loan to be in default. So both the Singleton Court and the Bartram Court, which is the Supreme Court, were wrong to even take that into consideration. That's nuts. That's, I mean, there are lots of analogies I can think of, uh, but the ones that are coming to mind I can't say over the radio. So... The that leads to another issue and possibly some strategies here. Um, is the Bartram court stating that subsequent payments must be accepted? If so, they are requiring the alleged holder of the note to start all over again with each payment thus received, which then negates the default. So until there's a default, after the payment that they are required to accept 
according to Singleton and Bartram, which no bank will do, then they have to wait for the for the borrower to stop paying again and then send a new notice of default which none of the banks are doing they're going, they're they're all relating back to the original default and uh, and a new notice of acceleration which doesn't matter according to Bartram if the bank loses if the bank wins, then the acceleration counts. So one, uh, one of the things that is apparent to me now, to, to me now, is that the, and they talk about it in these cases, is the, is the application of the doctrine of res judicata, that the thing has already been litigated. And I don't think that any of the courts talking about the statute of limitations have actually looked closely at the impact of their decision on the doctrine of res judicata. Because the reason why the homeowner won may vary tremendously. It might be on the issue of standing. And if it is on standing, it might be that the proof showed that none of the parties ever owned the debt, the note, the mortgage, the loan contract, or anything else. There could be a finding of that. Now, the same parties, or maybe a new party, could come and sue the borrower in foreclosure again in a judicial state or send a notice of sale in a non-judicial state. despite the fact that res judicata clearly bars their action. This action has already been litigated. You guys didn't own it. You never owned it. And that's a fact, and you never appealed that decision. But I still see decisions from trial courts that totally ignore that issue. So, well, let me ask you, uh, Charles to comment there. Yeah, I think you've you've hit on all the right notes uh, related to the whole problem here. I mean, there's so much institutional bias that the the court is intervening here to completely upend what the normal course of uh, appellate review would involve. And all you have to do is look at the New York decision that uh you know you you've referenced in tandem with this one for the purposes of today's show right i mean there there the statute of limitations issue was rightly decided, and that's the type of analysis analysis that should have gone into the Florida decision and and there are all kinds of decisions in the gray areas of the law across the country dealing with the statute of limitations anywhere from barring the bank from moving forward and to uh, ignoring the statute of limitations entirely 
And that's what's happening in the rescission cases as well. So the, uh, the main takeaway here for homeowners, I think, who are in litigation or confrontation with, with parties who claim to be the banks or the servicers or the lenders or the trust, which never had any assets, um, is that you need to be prepared to argue two things. One is the statute of limitations, assuming you've litigated before, uh, and the other is res judicata. And in the first case, tactically, you want to get the judge to issue as specific findings as possible uh, so that the matter will have been concluded and fully adjudicated. And then you could claim res judicata or collateral estoppel if they try to do it some other way. Um, uh, and you, you will certainly have uh, more issues on appeal if you lose, more likelihood of success in terms of not losing, and uh, uh, also the opportunity to show to the judicial system how they're undermining themselves and the finality of litigation, which is a whole point of having a court system. If you can keep going back again and again and again on the same claim with the same acceleration, that's going to be used in dozens of other types of cases and thousands and hundreds of thousands of actual cases as a reason why the statute of limitations doesn't bar your uh, a claim and it allows one to go back into court over and over and over again. It just doesn't make sense that the courts would do this unless we were dealing with what Charles just said, institutional bias. And that's the reason why I'm playing with the idea of using the same voir dire examination that you would do of uh, jurors, which normally you can't get a jury trial in uh, uh, non-judicial or judicial states because it's uh, an action uh, in equity rather than at law. So you, I think that there's a reason seeking information on potential judicial or institutional bias to question the judge about the judge's bias, about what attitude they came into the court with and what rules of thumb they use, uh, whether the, it comes up in argument or evidence or not. I have one case where uh, it's up on appeal now where the judge thought the deciding factor was whether or not the homeowner uh, put away the money that they were not paying to the bank. And that was a new one for me and one of the reasons why that case is on appeal. Uh, 
turned out my client did have most of the money set aside, which surprised him. But he ultimately decided that since they didn't have it all, that they should lose. And they did. And it's on appeal. So, Charles, what do you see as the current climate? I think we've defined it, but let's make sure that's what people keep asking me, and they probably ask you too. What do you see as the current climate in California, and what's your view of the nation right now? Well, in California, there hasn't been a definitive ruling related to foreclosure cases, related to statute of limitation issues uh, for some time. And I think that's partly because California is a non-judicial foreclosure state. And again, I mean, Neil and I don't talk about institutional bias because we have a bias against the lenders. We talk about it because this is a an absolutely facially apparent, unavoidable reality every time you look at these, these cases, whether it's for the first time or whether it's, you know, 50,000 times in, it doesn't matter. You're, you're anywhere along that spectrum. You look at these cases briefly or for a long time, and you see institutional bias crop up again and again. So in California, since the vast majority of litigation involves the borrower plaintiff suing the lender servicer, pretender lender, and the associated securitized trust in many of these cases. Since that's the scenario, the statute of limitations is used variously, usually as a shield, sometimes as a club, from the institutional side against the borrower. And the law in this area is relatively, I wouldn't necessarily say it's muddy, but it's certainly not fully defined. And there there aren't um, dramatic cases of the sort that you see that, that, that Neil is describing. I think these cases came down in New York and Florida because those are judicial foreclosure states. And the the courts felt compelled or at least inclined to intervene on behalf of the lenders and servicers. Since the parties bringing statute of limitations you know, claims, or to put it another way, since the parties in California typically trying to avoid a statute of limitations defense are the plaintiffs, they will they will they will not have a lot of law to appeal to. And I think what's most um, important when looking at California statute of limitations law, and this is if I were in any non judicial foreclosure state as a borrower, this is how I would examine my, my situation. When it comes to statute of limitations, you gotta start with some general principles. One mortgage issues are fundamentally contract issues. There can be tort issues involved, and often it's worth putting in causes of action related to tort. One, because you can get some real money damages out of them, potentially. Two, it will provide even greater relief 
I don't mean relief as in something you're going to get. I mean relief as in showing how dramatic your position is. It'll provide even better dramatic relief to the judge about what's going on in your case. Bottom line, contract law, the statute of limitations is four years. You know, Neil had mentioned five years for Florida. So it's pretty similar. It's a little bit less. But wrongful foreclosure, the vast majority of contract-based law types of claims, which include wrongful foreclosure that a plaintiff will bring in California or a non-judicial foreclosure state other than California, yeah, you're going to be dealing with four or five-year statute of limitations, which means you've got a significant period of time to bring your action, but you still have some real limitations. Now, if you plead quiet title, there's no statute of limitations per se about that. However, to have any chance at all of prevailing with quiet title, it has to be hooked to more conventional causes of action which do have time limitations. Slander of title, which which is kind of tort-based, has a three-year statute of limitations in California. That's because it's kind of a hybrid between a contract-based claim and a tort-based claim. Remember, with tort-based claims, you're always going to get a shorter period of time for statute of limitations because the idea is with tort, you have dramatic injury. You have a compelling injury. Therefore, the time frame for you to bring your action should be shorter. Also, because the evidence that relates to that is often compelling and can can have a tendency to go away over time. Whereas with a contract-based action, you've got written, written instruments to refer to. So the time for you to plead is extended based on that. Um, bottom line is, when you're in California, and I would say this applies to other non-judicial foreclosure states, you have to know for each cause of action what your statute of limitations is, and then you have to be able to plead tolling if you've exceeded it. What that means is you didn't know about your ability to get relief related to this cause of action. You, you, you had no clue or you hadn't looked into it, or you simply hadn't come across anything to tell you that you had a cause of action. Sometimes you can get judges to sign off on that, but don't count on it because judges will usually side with the lenders in these types of cases. So here are some lessons, positive lessons, um, from the Bartram decision. If they come back in using the original declared default date and they're trying to use the original default letter, that is barred by Bartram. Bartram did not just open up both doors, it opened up one door of the barn. And a caution to everybody and it's easy to, for it to happen. Statute of limitations is an affirmative defense. You either plead it at the beginning of the case or lose it. And watch how fast the courts will come around and bar you from pleading a valid statute of limitations defense late in the, in the case 
because you should have filed it at the beginning. So you use it or you lose it. Now, the interesting thing is in the the Teela rescission cases, which the banks are going ape about, and they're attacking lawyers and uh, in every way they can and the cases, trying to intimidate people away from rescission, is that one of the things that the truth in lending rescission uh, has in the statute is a three-year limitation. It's a statute of limitation. Now, unless somebody calls it something else, uh, number one, there's no question that tolling would never apply. Why? Because the courts don't want it to. Whether it should or not, that's another story, and I think it should, but whatever. So if the bank comes up with a statute of limitations argument against a homeowner who has merely sent and recorded his notice of rescission and it's in foreclosure litigation, the typical reaction from the court is to ignore the notice of of rescission based on the court's finding that three years has expired since consummation of the loan. The problem there is that nobody pled and proved that. And if they wanted to be procedurally correct, they would have to plead and prove it as an affirmative defense or in an action to vacate the notice of rescission. This is all being skipped over by judges because they don't want to fine for the borrower, they want to fine for the banks. They don't want borrowers to be able to level a playing field field that has been blown up by the banks. It's better that the borrowers should suffer and lose than the banks be punished for their conduct, which might, according to the orthodoxy that is popular in on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C., might imperil the entire financial system and therefore might imperil our entire social system and nothing but chaos would remain. We have heard that argument for centuries relating to any number of things, whether it was when Tyndall uh, uh, translated the Bible into English in England and he eventually lost his life because of it, it was said that if, if the populace was able to read the Bible, that there would be nothing but chaos because they would all decide for themselves as to what the Bible meant. Well, we all know that the Bible got spread around and everybody learned to read, and uh, uh, the chaos that was predicted never happened. And we've had at each turning point 
we've had those threats of all of society is, a, is going to cave in. And now homeowners have to defend against this amorphous cloud of bias based on the fact that if the banks go down, which, by the way, would be only a few banks, but they hold the majority of the uh, banking sector, the banking market. If the banks go down, we all go down. That's the, that's the message from Wall Street. And the politicians in Washington have bought it. So these things all contribute to potential bias, and that's why I think that a judge should be questioned as to uh, poss uh, possible bias on behalf of a homeowner who does who has doubts about whether or not he, she, or they will receive a fair trial. Um, I have had the occasion to do it once, and it was okay. Uh, I imagine that some people who try to do that will be lambasted by the court. But here's the thing, lawyers. You're there to fight. And you're there to get the pie in the face. As long as you're not disrespectful to the court, I think the questions in voir dire of a judge sitting on the bench are entirely appropriate, especially given the diversity of decisions throughout all of the major states that have been involved in foreclosures and uh, uh, many of the other states as, as well. All conflicting and divergent opinions, all bending towards finding a way to mostly find in favor of the bank when they already know from the public record, from the public domain, that these banks have been spreading fabricated, forged paper all over the place when they go to court. They've been spreading fabricated, forged paper all over the place when they kept selling and reselling the loans that they never owned in the first place. Oh, and Neil, I have to add to what you're saying. I mean, I think even in proceedings outside of trial, I think it's worth exploring using some kind of legal procedure to get judges to account for the way they're handling these cases. Because there are far too many judges. I know it's not just in California. It's in Florida. It's in New York. It's judicial. It's non-judicial states. They're mostly sleepwalking through these cases. And they just look at this as you know, kind of let it ride time where they go with what they've been doing for months or years and they're railroading the borrowers and they need to be held to account. And voir dire trial is one way to do that. And I think we should apply that principle there, but also in other proceedings to finally make the judges wake up and have to actually litigate these cases properly. I couldn't agree more. And we've, of course, run out of time. It always goes so quick for me anyway. Um, we'll be back with you next week. Thank you, Charles Marshall, 
and we will uh, uh, have a program next week that I think will be interesting for you. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.